0: Hello, you. Um, I'm sorry it's late. It's a bit later than I wanted it to be, I'm going to be honest. We're sort of nudging into October now. Uh, and it's quite a special episode, actually. It's one I've been really looking forward to because of the person that I interviewed uh, for this episode. I did think it'd be out a little bit earlier than this, but I've just had so much on. And the puppy, oh man, Woody, is uh, adorable, amazing, gorgeous, brilliant, lovely, super fun, but a puppy is not conducive with getting on with stuff in the garden. You know, you have to wait till they're old enough to be on their own for a bit. And you've taught them what to touch and what not to touch and what to go near and what not to go near. And all I can say, that poor wildflower meadow, thank goodness it's towards the end of its life. Because apparently that's very fun to run around in and through. See, uh, It was falling over anyway, so that's <laughs> that's my next job to do. But uh, yeah, so I've been very busy, and there are some very exciting things bubbling away for the next series of Roots, Wings, and other things, which I'll tell you about very shortly. But before then, um, I want to talk to you a little bit about the lawn, actually. Uh, now, I'm not going to lie, I, <laughs> I have been putting this off. The lawn is covered in clover. Now, I don't mind clover, clover's great for bees. I actually really like it, it's really easy to mow, it's soft, it's succulent and it's green isn't it you know can roll around in it and walk on it doesn't matter it is covered in thistles that's annoying and also really big thick set dandelion patches you know when and and i love dandelions amazing for bees as well love a little bit of you know leave your lawn for a bit and let all the dandelions come through let the bees feast on them then cut it back a bit if you want but these are epic dandelions of a you know we haven't mown this lawn for 10 years kind of scale I mean some of them are you know twice the size of my face a facey lion <laughs> Uh and they need you know pulling up and uh, and getting rid of because there's actually more weed and dandelion than there is lawn and dandelions aren't lovely to walk on Uh and the thistly things aren't lovely either so I've been putting that off But of course, there are these big borders. And uh, what has happened is the puppy came along at a time when my focus suddenly was super shifted towards, you know, puppy and staying in and thinking, okay, well, I'll get on with some of the stuff in the house because I can't go outside with a puppy. And, you know, we had that amazing summer. And again, you know, young puppy, eight weeks old, he can't be out in the sun for longer than a couple of minutes because they overheat, they get too hot, they get ill. So it really did put the brakes on the the garden a bit anyway I went out to look at the big borders if you remember I've created this lawn area put two huge six foot wide uh, six foot deep um, shaped borders either side of it and I planted some of the things in there that I bought from the farm that were in the pots but also seeded it with wildflower seed well it's gone uh, berserk There, there are so many weeds and grass and it's all overgrown but you know what now it's kind of the right time to knock it back you know there's a lot that's dying over i can identify where the weeds are get those out but it's just huge i mean this thing is it's 28 uh feet wide and six foot deep each border so they are they are big borders And it is a bit overwhelming looking at it and thinking, oh, crikey, that's going to take me, you know, a good long weekend, possibly three days actually to to knock all of that back into shape. So it's coming towards the, I guess, time of year now where you do the final mow, the final cut of your lawn. And so I'm going to do that and edge the lawn, edge those borders so I can actually see where the boundary is. But referring to my book, my trusty book, Everyday Gardening, written by John um. He talks, obviously, about a particular type of lawnmower. The book's written in 1931, so there's no electric lawnmowers in here. There are push lawnmowers. And I think this odd little contraption here, number four, might be a diesel one. No, it's not. No, that's not. It's definitely just a push one. Anyway, so I've done a little video on YouTube which is me comparing the two lawnmowers because I bought an electric one because the push one doesn't cope especially well with long grass. You know, push lawnmowers are great for maintenance, keeping on top of things. They just trim the tops off of the fine uh, bits of grass. Um, And I'm going to come back to it. If you haven't seen it, definitely go take a look. It's on YouTube, at That Jazz Rose. And you'll see that I mowed half the lawn with the electric lawnmower and half with the push lawnmower. And actually, it came out all right. It was quite interesting to see the difference between the two. There's pros and cons of both. Um, I think the pros of, you know, an environmentally friendly push lawnmower far outweigh the cons. And once you're on top of it, there aren't really many drawbacks to using a push lawnmower. Uh, So I don't know why we all do it. Anyway, we got to the end of the experiment. And I thought, why on earth, why are we using electric lawnmowers still? It just doesn't make really any sense. It's laziness, I think, is what it is. You know, we get a bit carried away, don't we, with the latest fad which I guess happened many years ago. Anyway, so that's that. I've decided that the lawn project is um, the next project alongside the big project out the front of the house, which is to rip up loads more of the sort of bare grass Replace it with wildflower seed all along the front of the house and all down the side of the house as well. Tidy that up. And actually we were sort of struggling to decide what to do with... There's a very large... People before us ripped up all of the garden and and lawn outside the front of the house and just replaced it with gravel to create a very big uh, driveway, which is more like a car park, frankly. Um... And Mr. Adorable came up with a really clever idea the other day of actually extending, just pouring soil over the top of the gravel and uh, extending the wildflower patch that we've got outside the front of the house so that it creates a nice soft curve um, right at the boundary of the house. So you'll walk through the flower meadow to get to the front door. It takes a load of the gravel away, which will look much nicer. So that's what I'm going to do. That'll be my project for this winter, is to... uh, Plant some more wildflower seed out there and see how that goes. And we've got some different mixes from uh, seed ball. So we're going to try the seed ball mixes outside the front there as well. See how they go. Uh, That's one of the benefits, I suppose, of seed ball is that they can be sown now. Um, Technically, they tell you, not they, not seed ball, but generally seed people. Talk about sowing in the spring. Most things. But I have to say, wildflower seed, I've chucked down any time of the year. Literally, any, I, I never even think about what time of the year is. I just chuck it down. As long as the ground's moist or can stay moist, you, know, you might have to water it a bit. I find it takes pretty much whenever. I mean, I've just chucked a load of phacelia and crimson clover outside the front, and that's germinated and growing beautifully outside the front. It's not really necessarily growing season for those. So, But then having said that, it's all a bit weird at the minute, isn't it? The weather. All sorts of things are growing and not growing. I mean, it's mid-October and the wildflower meadow at the back, it looks like a cosmos farm. There are, there is so much cosmos. And I do find that, uh, I was talking to somebody who was saying that it's autumn for the trees has come early because, uh, because of the bad weather we've had, or good weather, depending on how you look at it, it's triggered the trees into a state of distress and so they've started shedding leaves early as if it was autumn and now of course we've got this lovely balance of warmth and wet and coolness again so you're seeing some of the trees growing buds at a time when actually they should be dropping the leaves it's it's all a little bit all over the place which is a really kind of timely conversation really I suppose for this month because I thought it would be useful to go down to Kew Gardens to speak to them about this book. You know, I mean, John Coots was a curator, an assistant curator first, and then a curator at Kew Gardens. And I wanted to know a bit more about him. And I'm going to be honest, I was a tiny bit disappointed. I got in touch and I was expecting, I don't know, somebody in there research or history department to say oh yes yeah John Coots, yeah we know him and anyway the result was nobody knew who he was and so they said oh you know really sorry I don't know who he is um I haven't got anything here on him uh you know maybe there's someone else that could help you do you want to talk about you know something else because I don't think we'll be able to help talking about John Coots. Because I thought it'd be really nice to speak to Q and say, hey, you know, who was he? What did he do while he was here? What kind of a person was he? And it, it does sort of seem, I've done a little bit of digging online, but it does sort of seem that his legacy ends with these books. Um, I, I don't even know what he looks like. There's nothing in this book, certainly. I need to buy some of his other books, which I I don't know. I can't help but find really sad. I did also find it a bit I think I was a bit disappointed in Q that well, I guess they can't, you know, keep records of everybody that worked there. But he was a curator. It's not like he was, you know, he came and did a summer job one year and, and, you know, left. Um. Anyway, they put me in touch with a guy called Simon Toomer. And Simon very kindly agreed to take time out of his day and bless him, went to the trouble of he, he'd... I think he said he was familiar with John Coots by name, but, but, but wasn't really sure why. And he went off on his own steam and did his own research into John to find out what he did and what sort of things he was into, what kind of a person he was. So by the time we met up at Q and Simon very kindly invited Mr. Dorable and I down to Q, we um, had a lovely wander around and look around at some of the current exhibits and it's been i mean 10 years probably since i've been at q and i have to say if you've not been for a while it's one of those places where you can just keep going back because it's always different i mean for a start it's different every season so four times of the year it looks very different but they're always changing the exhibits and changing uh, the the planting there and i was blown away i mean i could have moved in i suppose anybody that likes gardening likes those sorts of places don't they but um anyway so Simon sat down with me and we had a really, really lovely chat in the Mediterranean garden about John and about the future of gardening, actually, because one of the things I've been discussing with a number of people in the background is what the future of gardening looks like, because with global warming and climate change, certain things are struggling now. We're seeing less of certain plants. We're seeing that certain plants are under more stress, or the flowering is less predictable, or you lose plants quicker than you did before, because of temperature changes or, you know, environment. Um, And also, of course, there is a big onus on us now, is there not to support the environment, you know, rather than importing plants from all over the place, just because we like the look of them, you know, maybe there's a responsibility that we should all share in planting things that demand less for the environment but give a lot back for example i don't know i bag on about it all (laughs) all the time i don't seem to stop talking about wildflower meadows but wildflowers are a great example of something that requires very little water you know they they're quite happy and in fact abundant in drought conditions and we're going to find that more i you know with water resources dwindling we will find that we'll be able to use less water. I think hosepipe bans for prolonged periods are going to become quite normal. I think we'll probably find that there are phases that we go through where we're not allowed to water things and choosing plants that can cope with that is a great idea. I think that's, you know, wildflower meadows or wildflowers or those sorts of prairie plants, I think are going to become quite popular you know grasses that are super hardy and resilient that just bounce back um, rudbeckia all of those sorts of prairie plants that are quite happy in dry soils and for prolonged periods of time maybe we need to start thinking more about those plants uh, and less about getting wrapped up in you know the exotics and the things that demand a lot of a limited resource you know if you don't live in a rainforest or in a an area with a lot of rainfall, then it's probably not sensible going forwards to pick those sorts of plants. But what a great opportunity for us to rethink the way that we garden so that it is supportive of the environment that we're living in. And trees too, right? You know, the more trees that we plant, the more water they need, um the more shade they create, the more competition they create. It's really difficult, isn't it? I'm finding myself reflecting a lot on how to plan a garden and how to plant a garden now. Um, which, you know, I, brings me into this whole kind of, you know, quandary about the lawn. You know, I keep going on about having this lovely lawn, but see, the reality is, I don't know whether I should just. The thing is, it's nice to have somewhere to be able to lay, isn't it? You just go out in the garden and think, oh, I lay down, you know, roll around with the dog or lay down on something or. I don't know, have a picnic or whatever. But, you know, maybe maybe that isn't required anymore. There's a patch outside the front of the house, uh, a a large area that was all lawn. Very odd, really, front garden like that. Uh, It was was square, very odd. um, But not square, it was a rectangle. Very large rectangle of lawn that abutted the driveway. So if you can imagine a a large rectangle, like an envelope on its side, like a DL size envelope, and two thirds of it is gravel and a third of it is lawn. And the gravel obviously is the drive. And then there's this random lawn. But you're not gonna sit out on the driveway, are you? I mean, we've got this huge back garden out the back. So I kept looking at it and thinking, what's the point of that? Why don't you just gravel the whole lot? Why, why, Why have you kept that bit of lawn? That's, which wasn't lawn, it was all overgrown grass. So it's that piece of grass that I ripped most of up, up and seeded with wildflower, which is still, I mean, I'm sat in the front room now looking outside and it it's still absolutely glorious. There's wallflowers that are still flowering. There are, what else is that? Uh, is that keriopsis that's still flowering? There's dill that's still flowering. It's beautiful, really lovely. Um, cornflower. There's a little patch of lawn that I kept to sort of shape it, you know. I put a tree in the centre of it. And the more I look at it now, I think, well, I don't know why I bothered doing that. So that's all coming up as well. We're going to rip that piece of lawn up, uh, put wildflower meadow there as well, all the way out the front of the house, which is much more beneficial for wildlife and for all of the pollinators that are struggling. But also it's less bother for me as well because you know it's one less thing i don't have to keep mowing and going and tending to and one less thing that doesn't need you know lots of water because grass obviously is quite a thirsty thing quite a thirsty plant so anyway i would love to know i think what you know what what your plans are for your garden maybe you don't have any plans maybe you've never thought about it maybe you don't want to think about it and that's okay too um if you haven't thought about it What could you change or what could you improve? You know, when something dies or when you cut something back or when you think, oh yeah, we might do something different with that border this year. Maybe we all actually will have to do that. Do you know what? Maybe our hand will be forced because I don't imagine it will be long before garden centres and nurseries won't be able to get hold of certain plants or that they will stop supplying them because they just don't have the right conditions to grow in here. And I think we will see over the next 10 years... A huge change in the types of plants available to us. Is that okay? Well, I guess so. I mean, I suppose that's happened all throughout life, hasn't it? All throughout the history of gardening. But there is one thing about this time of year, which is just awesome. And that is that lovely, cold frostiness. You know, when you can get your coat out, get your jumpers out that have been in the wardrobe for a while and you think oh I love that jump that's my favorite one finally I'll get a chance to wear it or your leg because it's not quite cold enough for a full coat it's a little bit warm just need a little bit of a little bit of warmth I took Woody out today and the sun is low but it's strong and the color is utterly glorious because of the autumn leaves and the color changing in the plants and we wrapped up a little bit and we went out for a little explore and it was just beautiful. And it's a lovely time to reflect because it's fresh, but you are right in the very centre of change. And I always, at this time of year, it's very strange, always, 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 just as it's starting to get to autumn, start to get a little twitchy in the house, start to empty the cupboards, start to clear up a little bit, start to think, oh, do we really need that? What can we get rid of? We don't need two of those. Um, We never use this. I have that cleansing sort of as nature is repairing and regenerating. So too am I. And I don't do it intentionally. It just kind of happens. I end up finding myself midway through my phone book, deleting numbers of people that I've, I don't know, stored from jobs or something or not heard from for ages or don't know why I've got the number in like an old supplier or something like that just having a bit of a cleanse and I love how nature steers that it's also a time of the year when those really dark mornings I find that a sad lamp really helps the the days that I forget to put my sad lamp on when your alarm goes off and it's utterly pitch black and you and you, your brain automatically wants to hunker down and not get up, and it's really hard to get out of bed and fight that alarm, and that you snooze and snooze and snooze. if you're Mr. Adorable, of course, it doesn't matter because you've set nine alarms that the rest of the house has to wake through as well. Um, but I, you know, that the sad lamp is a really great way of, I don't know, just kind of being a bit more energized and a bit more happy in the morning. So do find if. It's left for me to get up on my own and it's dark. I generally feel a bit more miserable in the mornings. A bit more heavy, I think. And it's a time of year when, you know, we start to get forced indoors a lot more. We can't spend as much time outdoors as we'd like to. Not not freely and willingly. Because, you know, if the doors open, you tend to sort of drift in and out. If you're closed indoors, you tend to stay indoors. And with that comes potentially a price for our mental health as well. So if you haven't done already, maybe you don't have an outside space or maybe you don't have an excuse. And certainly when I was without a dog, I didn't naturally go out very much. It took me, I, I think, sort of working you know, with my uh, personal trainer, to encourage me to do, you know, 10,000 steps a day or whatever. So I was walking in order to hit a target. So it forced me to get out. But unless you don't have those sorts of specific reasons to be out, understandably, I think you stay in. But I think now is the right time to be getting outdoors more, to be exploring. to get that contact with nature at this time of the year because there's so much that's happening. Autumn's a really I don't know a really involved season, you know, the, the leaves are falling, the the paths look different, the that whole kind of pumpkin fest thing can wrap up a bit. There's something lovely about being a bit cold on the outside but having like a hot tea or something. And it's bloody good for your brain as well. So that's enough of me for a second. Let's skip straight into this interview with Simon Toomer from Kew Gardens. I am so, so grateful for his time. And honestly, it was a dream talking to him. I could have spoken to him all night. Now, we recorded this right in the middle of the drought that we had earlier on in the summer, just a couple of months ago. I was hoping to get it in before now, but here we are, so you have to cast your mind back to the most utterly glorious, blazing day in the summer when we took a trip down to London to interview Simon Toomer. So I suppose before we get started, we should definitely have the sort of conversation that we've just had, Mm. which is to explain what on earth you do and, and what your title is and what you do here.
1: Yeah, so I've been here six months now and um, I'm called the Curator of Living Collections. And, and that's quite important because Kew's got loads of collections. People say, well, isn't that everything, you know? Isn't that what Kew Gardens is? Yeah, isn't it all living? supposed to be living. Exactly, but, but there's, there are a number of other things. So there's all the herbarium collections. There's an ethnobotany collection. There's a, an economic botany collection. There's a fungus collection. Yes, there's a lot of collections. So uh, my job is, is thankfully, because it's big enough already, is, is just you know, the plants you see around your ear, it's, it's all the living plants, from 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 redwood trees right the way down to, you know, tiny little cactuses in the glass house, you know, so...
0: And so they're your responsibility. So if one dies, somebody picks up the phone and says, Simon, what is going yeah, on? Yeah, it's
1: all your fault. Yeah. Um, well, it is, but I, I, as I said... When I first arrived, you know, people started saying, you know, can you help us identify species roses? I said, look, you know, this is a massive subject, and actually, I'm not really an expert on anything in particular. If it, if, it, if, my, if I have a speciality, it's in trees. So, um, I, you know, I started my career in forestry and woodland and trees, and then I into arboretum and arboriculture, and... It then progressed into botanic garden management so although so, so my skills if, if I have any are much more in in um, managing collections curating collections of plants and their interpretation and their presentation really so that's that's how I've ended up doing this job.
0: Incredible yeah. and so what, what is meant by the term curator what, what is so if you are a mm. curator of in your case living collections mm. or a curator of herbs or what, yeah. what, what does that person do?
1: Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think some, one of the comparisons I always give is, you know, a, a librarian is basically a, a, a curator of books. Great, right. yes. Um, and and it's all about selecting, you know, what you're what you're going to grow, or in this case, or what you're going to collect. If you're a librarian, how you're going to how you're going to arrange it, um, and, and, and then and then how you're actually going to disseminate that information you know, to others, really. So just as a library you know you can't you can't have all the books in the world you know it's just but unless you're you know you I, I guess there are one or two reference <laughs> yeah. libraries there. exactly but for, but you know with plants it's even more difficult you know there's 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 squillions of, of plants in the world we can't grow them all and some of them some of them you know just wouldn't be suitable anyway so it's, it's it is about defining what you collect and that and that needs to be informed by what your organization's Objectives are, and then whether it's laid out. And we're actually sitting in an area here that's called the the Mediterranean area. So I'd call that a thematic layout. Yes. The theme is the climate of the Mediterranean. You know, but you if you go to other parts of the arboretum, they're systematically laid out. So there's an area of um, of conifers. There's an area of um, leguminosi or fabiaces We we say now the pea family. You know, and then then you can find an area of all sorts of other families, Um, or sometimes. Botanic gardens are laid out ornamentally, and you know, so the various historic landscape styles are often reflected in botanic gardens and arboretums. Um, and and we have parts of parts of the, the the gardens at Kew still have that old historic landscape resonance. So you know, it was its origins were as two royal palaces, Princess Princess Augusta and and um, and, and and Frederick, um, at one end, and then there was George II Second and and, um, and Richmond Richmond Court. And one, one was very much in the sort of English landscape movement and the other was in, a, it was in an earlier, sort of slightly more formal movement. And then, and then the two gardens were brought together under under George III. And in a way, there was a clashing of landscape yes. styles as well as lots of other things. Um, and you can still just about see the join, actually. So, you know, those, <laughs> those gardens came from a different landscape movement. And then we had this massive imposition of the kind of Victorian mid nineteenth century, much more kind of um, systematic, scientific. Right. You know, this, we need to understand and control nature and lay it out in a new scientific way. So, driven yeah.
0: by the exploration and, and and collecting of plants internationally, like yeah, Audubon case movement and all that. Yeah,
1: of and, and, and also that that sort of greater understanding of science yes. and wanting to display science and that sort sure. of civic pride and you know um, education and learning and sure. yeah, so yeah.
0: Gosh, so a curator has a I mean, that's a huge responsibility, isn't it? I mean, you must. You know I don't know. You know, you've only just got here. Yeah, you're I? scaring I don't me. Don't labour it, but but, but, but it, you know, in some ways, it's it could be quite a bias. I mean, I suppose there are guidelines to prevent you from just saying, oh, "I've always hated those." Let's get rid of all of those. And, and that's the
1: and that's the actually the importance of having guidelines. And and the you know the the most important thing a curator does is make sure that there are guidelines. So yes. so it's not just doing things on a whim. Yes. You know, it is following, and it's. Any change that you get in a place like this, you know, it's the small hand on the tiller, actually. You know, mm-hmm, you don't mm-hmm. see much change in your time. You might, you might have the opportunity to reshape some areas. Um, but changes you make now will have a massive effect in 50 or 100 sure. years' time, particularly with trees. You know, we, we are having to... You know, you can hear the, the sprinklers going. It's been very dry here. Um, we are having to think quite long-term about adapting some of the tree yes. part of our choice. You sure. know, we were talking about... Curatorial choices. Some of the trees we see around us are not going to be here. You know, they're not going to be doing very well in the, in, in yeah. the projected future climate. So, we, are, you know, we're developing a new accession policy to do with tree choices. Uh, you know, and there's some choice trees that will drop out. Some trees that will be much more suited. Actually, luckily, we, you know, a lot of the trees that were planted 100 years ago actually, uh, you know, the, the changing climates playing into their hands to some extent. Sure. But many others, like beech, for example. Um, probably won't be thriving. So mm.
0: it's a little frightening to think that in so many years' time that mm. Palm House will have to be moved outdoors. <laughs>
1: well, the Palm Well, <laughs> the Palm House is just about to be renovated. Actually, it's going to be a massive renovation. Oh wow! It, every, it needs to Please be. Please
0: don't tell me it's a cafe.
1: No, no, no. It's going to be a Palm House. But right. you, the Temperate House and the Palm House tend to need to be renovated about every forty years. It's right. a hugely corrosive environment, yes, as you can yes. imagine. And it was originally coal-powered, and then in the oh. 1980s, when it was last renovated, it was converted to gas. Well, you know, yeah. um, we, we're we about to embark on a big um, restoration, and it will be ground-source heat, Gosh. probably, and other renewables. Hugely expensive. So, hugely expensive, but um, hopefully it will massively cut our carbon footprint. But
0: interestingly, and this is a thing that people won't realise unless they been, mm. and, and, and I think everybody knows about Q. I mean, it's mean, mm. it's the bastion, the stalwart of... Agriculture, of horticulture, mm. of ecology, of—I of, mean, it, it, everything happens yeah. here. It's the centre of everything, yeah. and and so because it's known, I don't think it's—you don't necessarily have that drive to come and visit because, the, 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 I guess, but one of the the challenges of a well-known brand or well-known name is it's yeah. always there in the yeah. background. And yeah. as I said to you when we met, it's been ten years at least since I've came as a visitor mm. to you know to enjoy the gardens, which I can't believe. I'm embarrassed mm. to say that as a gardener. Um, but in the palm house, there is what is believed to be the oldest pot plant That's in right. the world, which is the, yeah. one of the first or the first palm to go into that in, in a pot, and it's mm. it's still there.
1: Yeah. yeah, and there's one or
0: two one or two other
1: plants in there that are thought to be unique. You know, there there are no other plants of their kind in the world. Sure. So you know, as you can imagine, that uh, that adds a certain sort of nervousness and frisson to and renovating it. it. But yeah. um, no, you're right, and, and and also, I think people see Q because it's had such a long history, has been unchanging. Yes. Um, which, is, which is also not true. If you, yeah, look, at, you know, look at that pattern of history, it's changed massively. And I think sometimes as well people don't appreciate that um, it's always had a commercial, or certainly of certainly for the last couple of hundred years, has had a commercial um, impetus. So, you know, people see events and things happening and say, you know, well, it's becoming... But actually it was, it was described as a depot, for huh. the colonies, the yes. plant depot. So you know all those, all those big uh, plantation crops—rubber, yes. um, coffee, tea—and uh, all those other ones were often the techniques of their cultivation. Often happened here; they were developed. The skills were the the, the the school of horticulture here. Um, you know, it was started off as a, as a training place for colonial horticulturists to be sent out to establish these plantations. They would learn the techniques and that, you know, the, the, the seed from these crops were held here and sure. distributed to the colonies. And so, you know, it's had that commercial. It's just different now. You know, we, it's changed from being, from being uh, you know, the commerce of, of, of agriculture to the commerce of, you know, visitor attraction. But also... Uh, it's changed from commercializing those plants to conserving them yes so you know it it, it's always changing and it's always trying to find a new relevance and and you know the massive relevance now is 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 um looking for you know adaptability and Mm. use of plants and conservation of plants and
0: there is a sense of that it's palpable here you know it's not just oh they've got a new plant in that bed or oh they've decided to replant that bed it is palpable that there's a there's a reasoning, there's a sort of subtext, a golden thread, mm. if you like, around the changes of yeah. the planting or the, the way the spaces are being used differently. All the experimental mm. sort of elements. Um, I'm so pleased we had this conversation first because it brings me <clears throat> to this mm. book, and I'm pleased that you got to see it um, because, as uh, everybody listening will know, most probably, I have recently moved house, ended up with a half acre of overgrown grass found this book while I was moving in my library, Everyday Gardening by John Cootes, uh, brackets Q, who, according to the blurb, <laughs> is an ex-curator of Q, mm. but on a technicality as an ex-assistant curator at <laughs> Q. But we'll come to that in a second. Um, and I thought, wouldn't it be charming if I followed the book page by page? Lots of the stuff I already know, but there's an awful lot in here that I didn't, and an awful lot in here that I've had to relearn, because of course written in 1931, for example when it comes to mowing lawns, this is the example I always give, there is no electrical or petrol lawnmower in here, so um, you know, I'm using a push lawnmower, so I'm using oh. this as my step-by-step guide to create the garden. There has to be a little bit of free license, yeah. of course, but yeah. uh, so I suppose um, the first question that is useful to get yours to take on is, am I completely balmy? So, taking a book from 1931 and trying to apply everything in here now. um, Or... (laughs) You you look a little bit sympathetic, I'm not going to... I'm not gonna
1: lie. I, I think I think like like most things, some things remain the same, mm-hmm. some things change. The fundamentals often remain the same. Some things change, but I think it's always it's always interesting that we you know that the, the wheel goes round, doesn't it? Yeah. And things that we think are new actually were were being done before. So I, I always think it's valuable to to look at those kind of. But I also think it's quite amusing, mm-hmm. you know, when you when you when you read about things that people were able to do sometimes yes. you know that they, they, he would have had a vast array of chemicals yes. at, his, at his fingertips that he could use and yeah. almost all of them would have been banned now yeah, thankfully yeah. Thankfully. Yeah. but um, surprised
0: he lived as long as he did well, considering some of the stuff I know, he I had know, access yeah. to I'm not going to yeah
1: so, so no I think it's, it's always it's always useful and, and I think you know uh, it's, it's quite interesting I mean an example I would give uh, in some ways we've become very lazy like in a lot of things because globalisation has made things so available so you know, we tended to lean quite he- heavily on you know buying in planting materials, yes. particularly um, um, growing media. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of controversy at the moment um, and the need to eliminate peat from our yes. uh, use. Now, in the it, it, that wasn't so available in, in earlier times in gardening, and people just to have to make do, and they yes. to have to. They, and they they were very skilled at making growing media either through you know leaf. Composting, sure. or I remember one of the one of the readings somewhere. One of the apprentices' jobs was to go and dig out the old mole hills because right. that yeah. was, you know, it's been it'd been soil that had yeah. been filtered and sieved and by yeah. a mole. And so, you know, looking looking at how people used to do it in the past, I think is always valuable. It just, you know, I just think, you know, obviously <laughs> things have changed, um, and, and we you know we we become better in some ways and not in others probably.
0: Yes, I think you know, you think you're mm. absolutely right, and one of the one of the draws to this. To really reading the book as a guide was simply because um, the, uh, very few people it would seem well, I, I don't know if it's um, specific to gardening in particular but it is a generalization of society now is that we are in a very much a consumerist society where we'll use something throw it out Mm. We don't think about necessarily repairing things or keeping it going. And also because of the way that technology is advancing, we're able to consume so much new media and Mm. new information. There is almost an insatiable desire for new all the time. Mm. The next Mm. thing. that Mm. I don't want that because other people have got it. Or what's the new thing? What's the next thing? What can I buy now? Mm. And the fascinating thing, of course, that is certainly highlighted in John's book is that actually, if you didn't have the right conditions to grow Plant X, mm. well then you didn't grow Plant mm. X. Yeah. You know, there, there wasn't, you know it was, that was as yeah. simple as that. And that's yeah. partly why people travelled around looking at people's gardens, is because, oh wow, you've got mm. the conditions with the soil here to mm. grow, yeah, yeah. Know, Plant P. Yeah. I'd love to grow that, but I can't. But now we've created, unintentionally, mm. this environment where we're using peat, and mm. we're, we're using chemicals, and we're buying stuff in order to create almost a false economy. So the charm of this, Simon, mm. actually, is that it's it is quintessential and it yeah. is you know a little bit oldie worldy, yeah. but it's it's truth. It's quite yeah. honest, you know.
1: Yeah, and I think you know that luxury of being able to go to the you know to go to the garden centre and choose from the vast array of plants, mm-hmm. um, and and then if they didn't you, you didn't do well, well, yes. well, or you forgot to what you just go back the next year and buy them again. And yes. a lot of people do garden like that, and that that's something i think we have to you know we have to change i sometimes say you know a plant is not just for the summer you know it's it's for life and and they would have had those those people would have had much more of the skills to propagate and share plants because they didn't have as as much money either You um so yeah i mean i think i think as i've said some things get better and some things don't and i think um I think, you know, we have to learn to take from, the, take from what was good, really. I'm hoping yeah.
0: that my garden falls into the former and yeah. that it's going to get better. Well, yeah, I mean,
1: gardens are much more interesting places when they, where the plants are linked to the people and people can remember when they grew them and who, who they got them from yes. or how they propagated oh, them. And, and, you know, they, they take them with them over time rather than just, you know, them just becoming another consumable
0: well gardens are a story right mm, the, the, we forget that yeah. whether we're doing it intentionally or otherwise yeah. we're writing a story through plants and and, and, yeah. and positioning um, which ties in perfectly to my question that mm. i was so so desperate to ask you <clears throat> which was about um john's work here now i sort of you know fell head into the fact that this guy uh, i have no idea who he is i have no idea what he did i just found this book i can't even remember mm. when i bought it i certainly wouldn't have bought it as a gardening book mm. i possibly was gifted it i collect old books so it's mm. fallen into that collection somehow uh, and i just thought oh gosh look at that everyday gardening's landed in mm. my hands at the right time um and the queue thing made mm. a bit of a you know an impact yeah. i thought oh, you know of yeah. all of the books that i've got on gardening i can choose from definitely yeah. this guy's but of course he is as we discussed one of many mm. people who have had the curator position here Mm. and who have had senior positions at Q. So, Mm. with respect to the deceased Mm. John Cubes, he's not necessarily a huge deal, right? I mean, because there are lots of big deals in the history of Cubes, He's not like he's the curator and there were no others. But what sort of impact can a curator expect to have here? You know, Mm. we're talking there about stories that you write and impact that you have and actually this is, you know, it's quite a responsibility Mm is it something that i mean can you be a curator here and people forget you and nobody ever really know what you did or is it sort of you know only 20 years down the line you begin to
1: see? i i think i think i but i think there are different people have a different influence depending how they interact with the place and i i think broadly you know broadly speaking you get people who come and actually have an impact over quite a short time um and that's Sometimes because they're the kind of people who like to move on from one place to another, and I'm probably falling into that category. And then there are people who are sometimes more quiet figures who actually stay for their entire careers, you know, 30, 40 years. And, and, and the, the Q gardens is full of those people um, who, who don't always make their mark in, in recorded in their recorded contribution, but they do have a massive contribution, and I think, and and some people, some people are just naturally modest, you know, and and, and I think assuming that because they don't turn up in literature or records means that they didn't have much influence, I think is wrong actually, because. Um, and, and my, my guess, and, and I don't know a huge amount of John. And thank you for introducing him to me. I have done some research on him since. He would have been one of those quiet people who actually made a massive contribution. I think right. probably he was. He was known to be very quite popular with people. Um, was always very supportive of students. The, the trainees, the junior gardeners, was, 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 was said to be very keen to take them under his wing and sort of show them and, and, and so my, my, my hunch and I, I like to think this night and, and I genuinely do think he 'd have been one of those quiet people who actually has had a, would have had a massive impact sure. and there are people here at Q now who, as I say, you know I, I could say they are the, the modern equivalents probably yes, yes. Um, and then there are people who who have probably more. Sort of institutionally influential positions who will okay. go, who will have a higher profile historically, but but maybe didn't certainly wouldn't have had such a, an impact sure. on the plants and the landscapes around us.
0: So it's not, and of course that's a very important point mm. just because you've had a curator position here or a senior position at Kew Garden, You don't, it's not you're not obliged to write a book, <laughs> no, <laughs> or obliged to do anything no. public, right? Yeah. Um, and presumably you don't automatically get a tree named after you or something like that. So there's a,
1: Nope, you don't. No, nope. I think. I think the, the, the fact was why you John Coots was, was actually here, worked his way up through the ranks, if you like, and I think you know. So I, I think he, he got there on merit, yes. and um, and uh, yeah, would, would, would certainly have had a, a massive impact before he was even curator. I think it's really uh, lovely to
0: hear. So listen to sort of wrap this up because I know as you've said, the sprinklers are going. It has been obscenely warm. I can't imagine that everybody mm. here has an awful lot of work to do right now, more so than, than you did. Um, so to sort of wrap the conversation up, we've spoken a bit about the um, past. And uh, and I think, you know, when you're writing a story through plants, there is always a nostalgic element mm. to the gardens that you create. I think it's also hugely important that we look to the future as well. Mm. So. Um, as someone with a, a curatorial position here at Kew, and as an individual, as a gardener mm. too, and a person passionate about trees, I mean, you can't be passionate about trees without being very mindful, if not passionate about environmental mm. impact as well, right? Mm. and, and a, in ecology. Um, what do you think the future is for Kew? Mm. Um, and what do you think the future is for, for gardening? Um, mm. there, are, there are rumbles about changes needed to mm. the way that we garden, yeah. um, what, what do you feel about that and what do you think they might be?
1: Yeah so I think we've all become much more aware in the last few years of just how important gardens are to people's well-being, I mean in the broad sense of the word and I think botanic gardens have always have always been aware that they needed to adapt to meeting modern and new significances I mean I think it's something I sometimes say it's it's too easy to assume just because you're growing rare plants that you're conserving them or just you know just because you're you're green in colour you're green in you know your contribution Um, so, so I, I mean, I think Q gardens will, and it's you know, it's it's, it's a sort of a, a core of my role really. Is is that constant mindful on on are we are we meeting the objectives that we can best how we can best con- contribute to people. Um, I mean, I do think plants people tend to see almost if you're growing plants, that's an end in itself. Mm-hmm. And I do think you know gardens and particularly public gardens have to be mindful that those those plants have to serve a purpose, even if it is a you know a soft purpose in terms of well-being. So we, we will we will change. You know um, some of the some of the interpretation around. You know uh, you, you you'll see at Q the, the the food um, festival at the moment the um, future food festival, Foods forever it's called. You know uh, uh, are examining our relationship with 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 food crops and particularly those um, ancestors of food crops wheat and carrots and aubergines and you know, and how we can serve that genetic diversity for example so all those significances we have to make sure that we're, we're meeting um, and,
0: and that I suppose is reflected in personal gardening because of course the in the same way that fashion dictates eventually the clothes that you know people who aren't interested mm. in at all fashion wear, um, mm. I suppose the changes of that are happening at a, a, a more um, I don't know the sort of the the, the horticultural mm. the that dictate the plants that we will or will not import and grow and how and but of course mm. we'll be dictated dictated by environmental factors right mm. I suppose we will as gardeners as individual gardeners will start to see some of that and. in what reduction of choices or change of choice or i think
1: i think i think change in choice yeah but i mean um people are more and more interested in things we eat plant plant plant-based diets and food and so i think you know that, that that's all that's all hugely relevant to what we do and uh I, mean, I think beauty is a is a is a thing that we sometimes it's easy to take your eye off when mm-hmm. you're when you're managing in a sort of focused curatorial sort mm-hmm. of scientific way, and I, I think we do need to we do need to hark back to that. And it's quite interesting, you know, that if you like the heyday, the royal heyday of of Kew was around that sort of eighteenth century period with Hogarth and all those mm-hmm. people who were pontificating on the meaning of beauty. And you know, I, I do think we we need to remember that um, it. it, it you could do both, actually, and it's steering that curatorial sweet spot. I, I, I love to use that, you know, the, the, I keep on dropping in curatorial because <laughs> it makes me feel important. But You know, that sort of um, fi- finding, that, finding that sort of beautiful balance where we, we're growing all the right plants for science and conservation, but at the same time giving people great pleasure and the thrill of, uh, you know, being in this wonderful environment as
0: well. And it is a wonderful environment. So mm. I guess from all of the gardeners that have and haven't visited, thank you. Uh, on behalf of all of us for doing the things that you do here and doing mm. it so incredibly well because it's it's stunning but it's it's not just beautiful it's beautiful mm. first and foremost mm. but it's it's also remarkably important so mm. thank you um, good luck with whatever you do next thanks thanks so much simon and and thanks for listening uh, to you as well at home it's a joy to be able to go off and speak to these people that I know that you will also enjoy hearing from. And and I think Simon's, in you know, my time with Simon and my chat with him, gave me an awful lot to think on and reflect on. And and I hope it does for you too. I'm still sad that I don't really know who John Coots was. And in the background, I continue to have a little explore and a bit of research to find out more about him there doesn't seem to be much about him at all about his personal life about who he was and those are the things that I'm genuinely really interested in but everything I do in the garden I am you know reminded of him now as it comes to the season to trim back some of the wild uh, hedgerow I think of John because that's you know it was his inspiration really for creating that uh, wild hedgerow that I planted it in the first place, and it's his guidance that um, is going to help me to to maintain that. I think about him whenever I look at that bloody lawn project that I've got to <laughs> I've got to tackle, because again, you know, there's a whole section here on creating a lawn and maintaining it, and and it's because of John's book that I opted to buy a push lawnmower this time, and I'm doing something better for the environment. It's because of John actually that I looked at. Um, Wildflower meadows, because while it isn't in the book, because you know there were plenty of natural wildflower meadows at the time, there's a whole section here on planning the garden and thinking about flowering. And you know, having already been involved a lot in wildflower meadows and wildflower at the farm. It was the thing that actually stuck out for me in here, that it wasn't in here because of the time of year. Uh, Sorry, because of the time of uh, in in history that it was written. So uh, sort of everything I do in the garden comes back to John, really. Uh, And I really wish I could have met him. I think I'd love to thank him for producing the book. I think it's been extremely eye-opening to see that very little, just as Christine said in the last episode, has changed, really. The fundamentals of gardening remain the same. Maybe they're sort of design-related things or, you know, the latest tips and tricks because of the way that, um, you know, we get presented with the latest gadget or something. But also, it has made, it's reassured me, working through John's book, that... It's okay to choose the sort of classic flowers the things that you know perhaps we're always looking for something different aren't we always we're never really I don't know grateful with our lot and John's kind of opened my eyes to that a bit really that there are different ways of being able to garden and it's okay what you decide is right for you is is okay but there's a whole other side to engaging with our gardens that I'd never thought about before, which is about stopping and knowing 100% why you're doing what you're doing and asking yourself, you know, is this the right thing to do or is this the best thing to do? And the answer to that might be that you know it's what you want to do and that's the end of it but the answer might also be i've never challenged myself before i don't know is an electric lawn mower the right thing to do and i've questioned almost every gardening practice that i've ever um you know i've ever had that i've ever used because of john's book so it's inevitable the future for all of us looks very different The future of our relationship with nature looks very different. And of course, in turn, with our gardens. One thing's for sure. We gravitate towards nature. Now, I was in Manchester recently, staying overnight. And I looked out of the hotel. And uh, it was in a very, very tall hotel that looked over the cityscape. And there were dozens of people living in apartments who had put plastic grass, AstroTurf, on their balconies. And I thought that was such a strange thing. You know, we, we don't even know it, but we need nature. We need the green. You know, we can't even leave the balcony as concrete or wood or whatever the substrate was, whatever they were made of, whatever the finish was. There's a desire to go out and make it look like nature because it can't be nature because you can't grow grass sustainably on a balcony um well you can don't write to me i know you can <laughs> i suspect facilities might moan about it and it takes a bit of work but isn't that fascinating that there the draw to nature is so pull that we will naturally just mimic it Plastic flowers, silk flowers. There's an untapped need, an unaddressed situation there where people need to have an innate contact with nature. What a glorious thing that is available to us for free. Now is the time to go off and get your nature fix as often as you possibly can. Now, next series is going to be a corker. I I'm super excited to tell you about it, but I'm sort of not going to. Um, it's a complete relaunch of Roots, Wings, and other things. There's a load more content, and there's a co-host, and it's going to be filmed, so you'll be able to watch it all online. You'll be able to catch up a little bit, and there's a ton of free stuff coming your way. I am really excited to grow Roots, Wings, and other things. Globally, to the audience, to you, and to your friends, and to more people. So, if you know somebody that likes nature, they like gardening, they like, I don't know, the great outdoors, they like the idea of having a cuddle through a podcast. I like to think it's a fairly friendly space that we keep here, <laughs> occasionally controversial. But if you know someone that might like it, let them know about Roots Wings and other things. Get them to subscribe to it, download it. If you love what you're hearing, remember that unfortunately there are no sponsors, but I've always tried to keep it that way. Um, I don't want it to you know, become overly commercial, but all of the things that we create for you really are done uh, entirely for free. All of the equipment I buy all of the time that's mine, filming it, recording it and editing it and producing it uh, is entirely for you. If you love it, feel free to head over to thatjezrose.com forward slash donate. Um, don't forget to find me on Instagram at Rose and YouTube as well. There are new videos almost daily at the moment with an awful lot coming about the uh, updates in the garden. In fact, just tomorrow, I'm about to film a load of videos in the new garden kitchen. Uh, because now, even though we're heading into autumn and winter, it's my favourite time to barbecue. I love Christmas dinner on the barbecue. I love barbecues this time of the year. You can absolutely cook over open fire any time of the year for full flavor and the most enjoyable, I think, way to interact with nature during the kind of windier, darker, colder seasons as well. So, listen, gang, it has been as ever a whirlwind. I can't believe how quickly these episodes go. The new series is much shorter. So actually, series uh, five, we're only going to be recording sort of short 10-minute episodes, Um, but they're going to be every single week rather than you having to wait every single month. But I don't want to tease you with the stuff that's not here because it will be here very soon. And for now, we've got these. So listen, gang, I will see you next time. Stay safe. Be kind to yourself and to each other get outside and enjoy those pumpkins.